Romans 8, verse 31. What shall we then say to these things? If God be for us, who can be against us? He that spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? It is God that justifieth. Who is he that condemneth? It is Christ that died, yea, rather, that is risen again, who is even at the right hand of God, who also maketh intercession for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or sword? As it is written, for thy sake we are killed all the day long. We are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. Nay, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you that we are more than conquerors through Jesus Christ, that there is no creature with any power to separate us from his love. Encourage our hearts, build us up in our most holy faith as we consider the oracles of Almighty God Guide and direct our thoughts and minds in him. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Please be seated. We saw in our last study of Romans the infallible connection between justification, election, and the death of Christ. That those Christ died for in satisfaction to God's justice are only the elect and that they alone shall infallibly be justified and glorified. We saw the consolation in this and our duty to reason as the scripture does, seeing the various doctrines in light of each other. We saw the doctrine of limited atonement, that God has no justice without mercy and mercy without justice toward his people. Now then, let's consider verses 35 through 37, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? First then, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? This is what is known as a rhetorical question. It is not intended for you to answer somehow. It's intended to make a point. No one, in other words, shall separate us or be able to separate us from the love of Christ. Now he says, who, in fact, this is masculine rather than neuter. Neuter would be what thing? What thing shall be, separate, be able to separate us? And he lists a list of things, but he personifies them as if they were persons that we fight against who could separate Christ from us in his love. God's love is invincible. And this is what unites us to Christ himself. Please open to John chapter 13 concerning the love of Christ for his people. John 13. This was at the Passover feast. The disciples are waiting for a servant to do something. That's what happens when you come in from the dirt in the ancient world, the slave gets up and washes everybody's feet. 
Now notice, before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour was come, that he should depart out of this world unto the Father, having loved his own which were in the world, he loved them even unto the end. You see the love of Christ? When did it start? Well, he knew that he came from the Father from all eternity. He knew that he was going to die and be crucified and ascend back to the Father. And having loved his own that were in the world up to this point from all the way back in eternity, what's he going to do now? Drop the ball? No, he loves them even unto the end. That's why Jude said, what are the saints? The preserved in Christ Jesus. Do you remember that? Preserved in eternity past in the perfect tense and continuing to be preserved to this very time now. Jesus, having loved his own which were in the world, he loved them even unto the end. Please look over at 1 John chapter 4. All passages that we have considered recently or shall consider in these next two. 1 John chapter 4, page 1231. We'll look at verses 9 and 10. John, dealing with the love of God and our love for one another, says this. In this was manifested the love of God toward us, because that God sent his only begotten son into the world, that we might live through him. Herein is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Do you see how Jesus loved us? He came under the wrath of God in our place. That's a propitiation. Where the anger and fire of justice does not come down on the sinner, but comes down on the sacrifice, even Jesus, the propitiation. That's what love is, what Christ has done for us. Now, please turn to Revelation chapter 1, if you would, a few pages over, 1236. We'll look at this, God willing, in our evening scripture reading. Revelation chapter 1, verses 5 and 6. John is writing to the seven churches which are in Asia Minor. And he says that this is from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness and the first begotten of the dead and the prince of the kings of the earth unto him that loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood and hath made us kings and priests unto God and his Father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Here notice the love of our Lord Jesus Christ. It is twofold. One is he washed us from our sins. He cleansed us by his own blood. He had to die. He had to bleed. He had to suffer out of love for us so that we could be cleansed, forgiven, renewed, and accepted to God. But here notice, he did something else. He united us to his kingship, to his priesthood, and made us kings and priests unto God and his Father. Here, the love of Christ that is invincible. Please turn back to Romans 8 
concerning what sort of things shall separate us or who they are that shall separate us. First, he mentions tribulation. Now, it's an interesting grammatical structure here. The word who, as I mentioned, is nominative masculine instead of what, which is neuter, what thing. No, who, what person, in other words, which person, who shall separate us. And then he lists several things. All of these are also nominative. That means it's the subject of the sentence ordinarily in grammar. The subject is the one that acts. Who is the one that shall act to separate us? Now, each of these is in the nominative. Tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, peril, or sword. So, you could read it this way. Shall tribulation separate us from the love of Christ? Shall distress separate us from the love of Christ? Shall persecution, etc.? You could read each one of these words, plug it into the question, and the answer is still no. Now, this word tribulation is thlipsis in Greek. It's a wheel that comes down to crush the grain or a pinching device or when they would crush the grapes Philipsis, they would bring down a heavy weight on top of the thing to crush it. That's the goal. And in the case of wheat, you get rid of the chaff. In the case of wine, you draw out the liquids. That's what the crushing was for. So the question is, when these trials come down, when these anguishes come down, as in John 16, 21, Jesus refers to the anguish or the tribulation of childbirth, when the calamities of war, as Matthew 24, 21, refers to the tribulation, remember the great tribulation, the megathlipsis in Matthew 24, these great pressures and trials and judgments that will come down. When these pressures come down to crush with their weight as the wheel crushes the chaff or the grapes are crushed, will that separate us from Christ's love for us? That's the question. The answer is no. What about distress? Now here, some believe, Augustine believed, that there's a figure of speech in this text where the apostle goes up ascending steps, one thing to another, one after the other, each worse than the one before. Here you have a tribulation or an external pressure coming down upon you. Next is an internal pressure or narrowness, distress. We call it being stressed. Someone says they have a stressful job. Well, technically, you have a tribulation in your job. The distress is your response to it. Those sense of which is like, I don't know what to do. I am so straightened in this circumstance, and in my mind, I'm not sure where to go next. I can't figure out what I'm supposed to do. I am in distress. I'm overwhelmed. I'm perplexed. I'm pressured from within. There is no room for me to move. That's the next step. Shall that separate us from the love of Christ? No. What if someone hunts you down like a dog? That's what persecution is. 
That's literally what it means to run after someone so that you can catch them as a wild dog you wish to kill or a prisoner you wish to throw into prison. What if we are chased as David was chased? You remember he was persecuted by Saul, by his king, chased down like a little dog. Why are you chasing me? He asked Saul. What have I done? What evil have I done? And yet... What do tyrants do? They chase to kill, to torture, to imprison. Calvin notes, tyrannical violence by which the children of God are undeservedly harassed by the ungodly. That is a persecution. Will persecution separate us from the love of Christ? It will not. What about famine? You've been persecuted so long that you have not been able to grow crops, you couldn't earn any money, you couldn't do anything, and now you're starving. No food on the table. Will that separate you from the love of Christ? No, is the answer. Famine. You can't put bread on the table. Certainly God is displeased with you. Aren't you supposed to pray, give us this day our daily bread? Do you know that when we request that, it's according to God's good pleasure of his free gift. You don't deserve it, in other words. He He taught us to pray that, of course. But if he determines that it's for our good, that we would suffer in famine, then it's for our good. We don't serve our belly God. We serve the living God. God will not separate his people from Christ's love for them through famine. But wait a second. I can't pay the bills. I don't have any food. And now I don't have any clothes. Nakedness. That's the next thing he mentions. As the saints of old, do you remember what Hebrews 11 says? They wandered in caves and dens in the earth. And what kind of clothes did they have? Sheepskins. Goats, that's all they could find. Wild goats, they could kill them and wear whatever skins they had. That's it. Nakedness. They didn't have ordinary garments. They didn't have dignified or beautiful or multicolored garments. No. Peril. A condition of threatening circumstances, of danger, of risk. What about this? What if we're in peril of robbers, in perils of false brethren, the apostle said, in perils of the Gentiles on sea and on land, dangers everywhere, life-threatening conditions, risky business. Will this separate us from the love of Christ? No. What about the makairos? That's the word here. The butcher's knife. The sword of the magistrate in Romans 13, verse 4, by which he puts to death them that do evil, cuts their head off with capital punishment. Capitus is your head. Capital means cutting off your head. What about that? Will that separate us from the love of Christ? No. They can separate the head from the body, but not the body nor the soul from the love of Christ. This is the martyr's faith. And I note this doctrine. Christ's love is invincible. 
Whether you start with a mere tribulation or you step up to distress or you move then to persecution or to the famine that follows or to the nakedness on top of that or to dangers in every place or the magistrate draws his sword and cuts your head off. None of those will separate us from the love of our Lord Jesus Christ. His love is invincible. Now I should mention some people believe, generally those who ascribe to some form of semi or full-blown Pelagianism, that the love of Christ here is our love to Christ. Well, if it weren't for God's grace, every single one of these could separate us from loving Christ because we would become embittered because we would become, without the grace of God, hardened in our hearts. You don't even provide for me, Lord. I have all these troubles and distresses. It is not our love. In fact, in context, it's very clear. He talked about Christ giving himself to death for us, rising again for our justification. He talked about God loving us or knowing us before the foundation of the world. He talks about us conquering through him that loved us in verse 37. I don't think it's our love to Christ. It is Christ's love to us, and that love is invincible. Calvin again in no adversities ought our confidence to be shaken as to this truth, that when God is propitious, nothing can be adverse to us. God is propitiated, is he not? Jesus Christ is the propitiation for our sins. Is there really anything that can oppose our salvation? No, not even one thing. Let us then glory in the love of Christ. And as his love is invincible, so let our faith in his love be victorious, settled upon Christ. Our faith overcomes the world. Our faith overcomes the devil. Our faith overcomes the flesh. Why? Because it's real strong and we're real groovy and we're super hip? No, because Jesus Christ has made propitiation for us and we are the preserved by Christ Jesus. Let us glory in that love and let our faith match the love of Christ. Let it be invincible and triumphant because it is directed to Christ himself. Christ keeps us by his love let us renew our knowledge of his love. Let us delight in his love. Let our affections be inflamed as in that first love that we'll read about in Revelation. Let us have that knowledge of Christ's love for us inflame our hearts with love for him. Then the apostle proves this point. And we looked at this early on in Romans. We did a whole study of the use of scripture in the book of Romans. Here again, he uses the Bible as it is written, for thy sake, we are killed all the day long. We are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. As it is written is in the perfect tense. As it was written long ago and has been preserved by God even to this very day. Do you know God preserves his word? It was written, yes, 
thousands or hundreds of years ago in the Apostles' Day, but it continues right now as a written truth of God. And did you know that the Apostle doesn't bust out the Hebrew and start giving them words in Hebrew? Do you know what he does? He quotes from a Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament that we call the Septuagint. It is a word-for-word direct quotation as it stands written in the Septuagint. Now, people like to whine and they like to fuss. Why would you read this old translation? We don't say thee and thou anymore. Do you know they didn't speak Septuagint Greek when Paul was alive? They spake what is called Koine Greek or the common Greek. It's not classic. It's not these older Attic forms of Greek. It is a whole new form of Greek because languages without printing presses change like that. And you give 250, 300 years between a translation of the Bible and your day. What do you have? The language has massively changed as It is written, he says, it stands written in my Greek copy of the Old Testament. We must not despise those ancient and public translations or lightly set them aside. That's not the word of God. Well, was the Septuagint the word of God or was it not? Because Paul says it is. As it is written. This is the same as saying, God said, or thus saith the Lord. For thy sake we are killed all the day long. This is from Psalm 44, verse 22. There you have the persecution of God's people and their victory even over their persecutors. Now histories tell us that when the emperor Diocletian, in his insane rage against Christ, sought to stamp out the church in A.D. 303 till 312, 17,000 Christians were slain every month. Can you imagine? Every month, 17,000 believers slain. Now, do you remember the Huguenots in France? 30,000 slain in honor of their man-made holy day, St. Bartholomew's Day, in France in 1572. 30,000 slain around that one event. Well, the papists like to make it 5,000. Okay, 5,000 around that little holy day. You're going to kill 5,000 in a day and say, well, it's not too bad. Do you know what the Pope did after they slew 30,000 of God's people? for believing the gospel and not trusting in the Antichrist. You know what they did? They issued a coin. And on the front was the image of the Pope himself, Gregory XIII, on this golden coin, celebrating the murder of these Christians. And on the backside, there's a little angel coming down, I believe, with a crown to crown those who murdered those Christians. For thy sake we are killed All the day long. God has called at times for extraordinary suffering from his people. But they come off the victors. Do you know where the Huguenots ended up? After the Papists murdered them and drove them out of France. Do you know where they ended up? America. Have you ever heard of Paul Revere? Revier? Yes, descendant of a French Huguenot. Have you ever heard the name of the swamp fox, Mr. Marion? 
also descended of the Huguenots. Many, many throughout the whole world, throughout the Protestant nations, fled from France. They went to South Africa. They went to England. They went to Germany. They went to Holland. They came to America. What have they done? Much good. They came off the victors, though the Antichrist sought to stamp them out, and he treated them as sheep for the slaughter. You can read Fox's Book of Martyr about this, taking them and slitting their throats, and then go and get the next one and take them and slit their throats, just like sheep for the slaughter. Now this word accounted is the same word imputed. It means to reckon, to logically deduce to make some kind of judicial conclusion about something. Are the people of God sheep for the slaughter? No, but they are reckoned as such. Just as our Lord Jesus Christ had our sins reckoned to his account, and as we have the righteousness of God imputed to us by faith. Are we actually obedient in all things? No, but we're accounted as such. And so the wicked account the people of God as sheep to be slain, to be laid in the grave as if but an animal. They judge us and treat us accordingly, even as God judges and treats us as righteous. Scripture demonstrates that this is on the table for Christians. They might treat us this way again. And we do not believe that somehow Christ will stop loving us and that's why we'll end up in that position. No, not in the least. Nay, he says, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. Now this word nay is an ascensive transition or gradation. That means I'm going to turn you away from these things here as if somehow these would separate us from the love of Christ. And I'm going to transition upward and take another step. Remember I said these were steps in verse 35. Tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, peril, sword. And now he's going to transition. What are we in those very steps? What are we ascending to? Our doom? No, our coronation as victors, as those who have overcome all their adversaries, while they think we are destroyed and defeated, we triumph. In all these things, what things? The very things he just mentioned. These slaughters, these senseless and seemingly endless killings, in tribulations, in distress, in persecution, in famine, in nakedness, peril or sword, we are more than conquerors. Now, here, our Bible translates it as a noun, conquerors. The Greek is a verb. We hyper-conquer. Huper means above and beyond. And nikain, like the little shoes they have, Nike, they call it, that's from victory in Greek. So the Nike is the general who goes off to war and destroys his adversaries. And when he comes back, he is the conqueror. He is the ruling elite now. He'll usually become an emperor or a king or some kind of promotion is given to him. Why? Because he's a conqueror. 
God says, we do more than that. We go above and beyond mere conquest. We are more than conquerors. Huper nekomen. Worldly men conquer by force of arms, do they not? Do we need to raise a sword to conquer? Martyrs conquer without arms. Christ conquers without the sword, nay, in spite of the sword, for the blood of martyrs is seed. You cut us down, we grow more. It's that simple. Oh, glorious triumph, wandering in caves and dens of the earth, if we have Christ, we have it all. And here he says, through him, that loved us once and for all and continues to this day with this same invincible love demonstrated in laying down his life for us, we triumph. His work. He loved us. He laid down his life for us. He delivered himself up for us. He died, he rose, he ascended to God's right hand. He makes intercession for us. He is the one through whom we conquer. I note then this doctrine. Christ has appointed his saints to suffer with him that they may reign together with him. We saw this earlier in chapter 8. We are to suffer but for a little while. Why? So that we might reign together with Jesus Christ. So here he's illustrating that point. Did Christ not suffer for us? So when we suffer for his sake, he will cause us to triumph in the end. We hyper-conquer by the very things worldly men would think mean we're abandoned. They think and they look at that and they say, how can God love those people? He's left them. How could bad things happen to good people, they say? Well, the real question is, how is it that good things happen to bad people? There are no good people. But God's saints, bad things happen to them. Worldly men say, well, God must not love them. And for worldly men, if they serve a belly God, what does hunger mean? My God has left me. My God has abandoned me. I don't have food in my belly. What if you love pleasure rather than God? Would you be patient under tribulation, those pinching and crushing trials? If you love your life, would you lay it down for Christ? No. But we do not serve a belly God. We do not love pleasure rather than God. We do not love our life, for if you love your life and seek to save it, Jesus says, what happens? you lose it all. You don't get what you think you're keeping, and you don't get the other thing that's even better. Let us then trust in Christ's love. Let us endure hardness as good soldiers of Jesus Christ. Theodore Beza comments, not only are we not broken down by so many evils, nor despond that is to lose hope, but we even glory in the cross When we're called to suffer, you remember the apostles, they said, we're counted worthy to suffer for his name. And what did they do? They went home rejoicing. They were glad of it. They gloried in the cross. 
Don't look to your resources in distress, to your power of will in tribulation, to your belly in famine, to your diligence in nakedness, to your comfort in persecutions, to your life in your death. Rather look to this, Jesus Christ loved me and gave himself for me. This will be your comfort in persecution, your life even in death. Looking to Jesus, who if you have him, you have it all. And after you have suffered a little while, God will perfect you in all these things. And thus far the exposition in Romans chapter 8, 35 through 37. Let's pray.